Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. The West has pulled the trigger on the energy weapon, hoping to exploit Vladimir Putin's greatest vulnerability. Russia warns that the impact will be catastrophic. This week, the cost of crude oil hit a 14-year high at nearly $140 a barrel. But with an embargo, Russia says, that figure could more than double. This is Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix, and in today's show, can the West afford to ban Russian oil? While Russia threatens to cut gas to Europe, the race is on to find alternative supplies of oil for the world. All of us need to find a way to diversify our sources. We're not going to be able to drill ourselves away from dependence on on foreign countries for our own energy needs. As prices rocket, could this be Big Oil's big moment? If we can get the investor confidence back, I think the investment community would then support the growth of oil and gas here in the United States. And with energy security back at the top of the agenda, is the energy transition now on hold? It's very hard, and I have to say, I see politicians wanting to do this, is but stop all oil and gas and do the new energies. The world can't deal with that. You need both. Energy has become a weapon of war for Putin. Ban it. Ban the oil. Ban the oil come from Russia, yeah. This is actually something that can make a difference, that can get Putin's attention. After two weeks of mounting pressure, President Biden announced America will no longer buy Russian energy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. The coalition against Vladimir Putin will attempt to carry out a massive wartime energy transition. We will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. That commitment will be matched in part by Britain, Clearly, there is going to be a transitional period. Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a gradual phasing out, limited to oil imports. You can't simply close down uh, use of uh, of oil and gas uh, overnight, uh, even from, from Russia. European countries, who are most reliant on Russian supply, are still holding back from an outright oil embargo. But the EU will try to reduce its dependence on Russian gas. Two-thirds by the end of this year. It's hard. Bloody hard. But it's possible if we're willing to go further and faster than we've done before. 
at the very moment that some of the world's largest energy consuming countries swore off buying from Russia, which is the third largest oil producer in the world, nearly all the bigwigs of the oil and gas scene have basically been gathered in one big room. It's Sarah Week in Houston, Texas, an annual conference put on by the financial information firm S&P Global, and arguably the most important energy industry do of the year. Our global energy and climate innovation editor, Vijay Baithiswaran, is there. Vijay, welcome. Henry. Exciting. Have you, have you managed to get any sleep? Oh, who can sleep at a time like this, Henry? There's grand geopolitics. <laughs> there's the fate of the, if not the world, a big chunk of uh, an important industry being decided as, as we speak. So, no. Not much sleep, but an awful lot of news. Well, well, when I was last at Sarah Week, oil prices were so low, all anyone wanted to talk about was how to cut costs. So I guess uh, we've moved on different times completely. Just tell me, how has the mood evolved over the week? Who, who have you been talking to? I've been talking to oil men and women. There are a few. Delegates from uh, really 90 countries are there, over 5,000 energy executives and government officials and others involved in the energy energy services industries. The place is buzzing and not just because of all the caffeine that's available. Every hour, uh, every day, there seems to be a change in the program. The opening keynote was with America's climate envoy, John Kerry, initially expected to come and uh, give sort of a, a sober, tut-tutting lecture to the industry on how it has to do its part and be a responsible citizen in the climate transition. In fact, what happened was, of course, not only war broke out in Ukraine, but already there were signs that the U.S. administration might impose a ban on Russian oil. Oil prices had already leapt through the, the, the roof before the conference started. So, and then the announcement of sanctions did actually come in the middle of the, uh, of the conference, right? So what, what was the reaction to that? Absolutely. And so the mood changed dramatically into one of, here's an industry, the Western oil industry particularly, that is suddenly relevant, where energy security not climate is the number one issue that people are talking about. There had been a nervous anticipation uh, at cocktail parties and, and mixers and private gatherings, even one in which Secretary Kerry himself had a private coffee clatch with CEOs. The prospect of $200 a barrel oil was hanging over the conference. Uh, that is three times the level it was six months ago and uh, unprecedented kind of leap, certainly in recent times. As it so happens, just minutes after the announcement came from Washington of the ban on Russian imports into the United States, I spoke with Jose Fernandez, who was the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment. What this announcement does, Vijay, is it, it, it underscores a number of things. It underscores, one, our commitment to support the Ukrainian people as they battle a brutal, a brutal uh, invasion on the part of, of Putin. But it also underscores on a broader level the need for us to diversify. You know, for the, for the United States, banning Russian oil is not as painful as it will be for, for Europe. We only import 9% or so of, of, of our imports come from Russia. All of us need to find a way to diversify our sources. We need to move to, to a clean energy future. And we're not going to be able to drill ourselves away from dependence on, on foreign countries for our own energy needs. 
isn't oil a fungible global commodity? And therefore, the U.S. not getting this oil simply means it'll go to other buyers. So it's not penalizing Russia in any significant way. Isn't that a risk? What we refuse to do is to support the Russian war machine. Uh, there is a fungible aspect to oil, it is, but at the same time, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to switch. Uh, and, and, and we believe that this will continue to impose costs on, on Russia. We're already seeing the ruble drop down precipitously uh, to less than that one American U.S. cent per ruble. And that's dropped by half. It's, it's a historic low, and we will continue to do that. We will continue to impose costs uh, until it becomes clear to President Putin that the invasion, the brutality, the butchery just will not be tolerated. On this idea of imposing incremental costs, is it right to see the U.S. approach and the international approach to Iran where sanctions were sequenced, getting tighter over time to try to provide an incentive for uh, better behavior from, from Iran? Is that the model or template that the administration is thinking of with Russia, or is it a different situation with different tools? So, so you always want to have gradual sanctions so that you provide an off-ramp for the target. But, but it's, we did something differently here. And what we did here is we started at a much higher, much higher level. And we, we, we said it. We said it express, uh, explicitly. We said we will turn Russia, as a result of this aggression, into an international pariah. And we started there, and we're going to keep, there's no option that's off the table, and we're going to keep going. This is just unacceptable. Now, we've seen a threat from Russia to cut off the gas, at least through Nord Stream 1, a pipeline that does supply Germany with a significant amount of gas, possibly a bigger uh, retaliation if the U.S. imposes this embargo. That was a threat made by Russia in advance of the U.S. announcement. What would be the consequence if they follow through on that cutoff? Well, I'll tell you one, one immediate consequence, which is we've seen Russia in the past weaponize its energy trade. And we're seeing it again. And what it, what it will show is that our f concerns about Nord Stream 2, which were that it would, it would leave Europe, our European allies, much more dependent on Russian energy. The, the decision by, by the German chancellor to, to, to suspend those operations was the right one, and that we have to diversify. So if you are a seller of anything, uh, and you threaten to cut off an important customer, that is going to hurt your future sales. That makes it clear that you are an unreliable supplier. That's what the consequence will be. So, Vijay, interesting what he says about fungibility there. I mean, this is a big announcement, but how does a complete embargo work in practice? What sort of volumes are we talking about here and what, what kind of timescale are we discussing? Well, th these are actually some, some details that are in dispute and to some degree being worked out. But as it so happens, the, uh, the U.S. in particular imports very little Russian knowledge. They import uh, just some products that they use to make things like diesel and gasoline. So it's not really that significant in terms of the volumes involved. So the actual ban is more tokenism, but they're also hoping that this will give cover and encourage other countries to join and maybe rally around and create a bigger embargo. What's much more interesting this time is that the economic sanctions that were wrapped around and announced before the actual oil ban have led to many actors in the oil industry and energy transport industry and so on, tanker companies, banks, 
to self-sanction. That is, they've actually said, we don't want to touch uh, Russian oil, even though it's not illegal to buy it or move it. People have been avoiding it as though it were toxic. And that has actually led to, by some estimates, 3 million barrels per day out of a rough total of 4.5 million barrels a day of crude oil that Russia exports already to basically be stuck in Russia. What's the impact of that then on Russia? I mean, it's surely extremely dependent upon these oil revenues, isn't it, even to finance the war machine? It appears to be quite powerful. Now, it has to be said, if it were just an oil embargo, even a wider oil embargo with a lot of countries involved, uh, the people I spoke with, they were deeply skeptical that an embargo would work, uh, in part because uh, oil is pretty fungible. That means it can go somewhere else other than it's intended, as the Arab oil embargo showed uh, several decades ago, which was a flop. However, the sanctions that America's put that have effectively frozen Vladimir Putin's $600 billion-plus central bank reserves, now those really have had teeth because he hasn't been able to access uh, those resources. Now suddenly the value of even much smaller amounts of oil sales become much more important to keep the economy running. I think it's those two in tandem that are really going to be very, very powerful as a blow to the Russian economy. And when it comes to what happens to the Russian crude, if we assume that self-sanctioning starts to wind down simply because the world is going to be desperate, who do you think would support Russia at that point? I mean, could China uh, take some of those Russian barrels uh, that used to go to the West and move them east? I think it's a very strong likelihood that China will do this. Uh, as well as perhaps India and a number of other countries in the emerging world that have never liked the long arm of American law, that is the U.S. use and some would say abuse of economic sanctions uh, to further American policy aims that other people may not agree with. Now, we saw this with India and China also not joining the West and condemning the Ukraine invasion by Russia at the United Nations. So that's a signal, as well as historical behavior. Uh, when uh, With Iran sanctions and Venezuela and other countries, uh, we, we often see China and India often swoop in and get oil at a discount. Yes, like the price of Russian crude seems to be trading sort of $20 a barrel cheaper than, uh, than, than other benchmarks, which is extraordinary. E even more so, $28 a barrel discount is the latest figure. Oh, wow. I mean, I know that, um, that you don't expect there to be a sort of worldwide embargo on uh, Russian crude. Um, but um, we have to keep all scenarios open here because I think that just a week or two ago, no one would have expected an American embargo on Russian crude. So who knows what will happen. So what is the fear of how high oil prices could actually go? And can we predict at this stage what the impact would be on the, on the economy? Uh, you're right that multiple scenarios are possible. Some relatively benign scenario would be that some accommodation is reached uh, and in, such that uh, a big chunk of Russian oil still makes its way to market probably not the U.S. And, and some allied countries, but that the U.S. allows that oil. In fact, the U.S. has indicated explicitly it wants Russian oil to get to market. It wants to ensure uh, a stable supply of adequate oil to world markets. Uh, 
And the reason the U.S. has phrased uh, its words like that is because, of course, if there were to be a massive reduction in oil to the world market, like the removal of all Russian production, you would see a spike, many people think, well above $150 a barrel, pushing to maybe $200 a barrel. And that would be very awkward indeed for President Biden. And the first reaction that Vladimir Putin had to the announcement of the American-led ban was to sign a decree threatening to cut off commodity exports. The details will be known in coming days, but we can see he's ready to use energy and commodities as a weapon. And we've already seen significant disruption. Prices have risen enormously, and I think they will rise further. And that's the betting in the markets as well, if you look at futures markets. And this is going to have big costs to the world economy and possibly could tip parts of the world into recession. Well, we'll talk much more about how those costs could be alleviated in just a second. But first, we have to remember that the commodities disruption due to the conflict in Ukraine isn't just about energy. It's also metals, it's wheat, food prices could go ballistic. Our colleagues are doing incredible work breaking down what all this means for the cost of living around the world. So make sure you subscribe to The Economist for full access at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Well, there's a a big shortage of Russian crude in the markets at the moment. So given the extent of the potential economic fallout from the price rises that have followed this, Vijay, to what extent can alternative supplies compensate for that lack of Russian oil? I mean, I guess the big question here is how much spare capacity is there around at the moment? The short answer is no single country, nor even any combination of them, can make up for a loss of Russian output of the magnitude that we're seeing, Um, especially if it continues and all of Russian exports go offline. The secretary general of the OPEC oil cartel was present uh, at this conference in Houston, and he said very plainly, Russia is simply too big. We don't have the capacity in the world to, uh, to substitute for its capacity going offline. So I put this question to Fatih Birol, the director of the International Energy Agency. Just a few days ago, our member governments show a major solidarity and decided to put 60 million uh, barrels in the markets. And this was an initial uh, move. And uh, if the situation continues like that, it may well be the case that uh, we could recommend our member countries continue and uh, put uh, additional barrels in the markets. Let's do not forget that the 60 million barrels we put in the market what we are going to put in the market is only 4% of the stocks we have today. I would have hoped that the other producers, OPEC plus producers, see this extremely fragile situation and would take some decisions in order to comfort the markets. But in their meeting only a few days ago, I didn't see any such messages uh, coming. It was a disappointment for me. 
OPEC Plus has been unable to meet its own stated quotas, as we've seen in the last few months, in part because of some technical issues related to COVID shutdowns and staffing, uh, maybe other issues as well. Is there any realistic prospect if Russian output were lost that OPEC countries could increase production or that the Saudis could bring on their spare capacity quickly? I think in a few Gulf countries, there's a significant amount of spare production capacity which would come to the markets and help the stability in the markets. But we have not seen such an intention during the last OPEC Plus meeting. And I hope in their next meetings, they will come up with some much more constructive position. If there is an agreement between Iran and the international community in the next few days, this can also help. We are already expecting in the next uh, several months over 1 million barrel increase coming from U.S. shale. We also expect work to come from Canada, Brazil, uh, Guyana and elsewhere. But there is a need for the Gulf producers also uh, make available oil to the markets. Just to be concrete on that, uh, Fatih, the, the total OPEC spare capacity, some estimates are 2 million barrels a day maximum, most of it, in, as you say, in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, UAE. Are those numbers the IEA agrees with or do you feel there's a different amount? And also how quickly that can come on is also in question in the marketplace. I think our numbers are a bit higher than those, but we have not seen any single barrel from coming from the spare production capacity from uh, Gulf producers, and most of them can come uh, very quickly to the markets. And I think if they do so, the impact on the market will be even beyond the volumes, which will give a good signal to the market that we are all in the same boat. Vijay, do you agree with Birol? Could OPEC be doing more than it says it can? One of the assertions from the uh, IEA and Fatih Birol is that OPEC has more spare capacity than it's letting on. There's widespread belief uh, that, in fact, spare capacity in the world is at the lowest point, especially when you measure it as a share of the size of the oil market, than it has been in many, many years, if not decades. Um, people in the marketplace believe that there may be roughly 2 million barrels a day or maybe just a little bit more of spare capacity, most of it held by Saudi Arabia, which might have half of that, a million barrels a day, and a couple of its neighbors, uh, the UAE and uh, Kuwait to some degree. But the, again, the big kahuna here is Saudi Arabia. And with just a million barrels a day, uh, it's not enough to substitute for Russian output. But yes, it could be doing more, but it wouldn't be enough. And what about the IEA itself? Um, how much does it have in terms of strategic reserves that it could release? Now, that's a very interesting question and actually a, a rare bit of somewhat goodish news in this rather gloomy picture. Uh, that's because the IEA has for decades coordinated the storage and release of government strategic stocks, they're called uh, petroleum reserves. The member countries sign on to keep something like 90 days worth of coverage of, of their consumption. Uh, they announced a release uh, already last week. They had hoped that this announcement and show of force, as it were, as consumers would encourage traders in the marketplace to uh, have confidence and reduce you know, the, the price that the, the fear premium would go away. In fact, the opposite happened. People were deeply unimpressed and prices went up on the news of the release. There is an oil boss, an iconic character, John Hess, and he spoke on stage in Houston and he said, we need strategic reserves, but we need double that amount that the IEA announced. We did 120 million barrels a day this month 
and again next month, and then be ready to do more. And so there's a real sense that these strategic reserves could play a role in calming markets, but they need to be much bigger and a bigger show of force than they have been thus far. And in terms of oil diplomacy, uh, clearly it doesn't seem as though the United States government has as much leverage over Saudi Arabia as it might have had in the past. What about, for example, Venezuela or even Iran? You know, these are countries where there are uh, embargoes on oil or sanctions on oil. Um, is there anything that can be done to get an, enough oil from them to alleviate the problem? Well, the Biden administration is busy uh, trying to get a deal with Iran. That's been uh, going for you know, a long time, but it, with great intensity now. An oil man joked that you know it just looked like Iran was going to come back on the markets, uh, you know, within days for the last year or so. You know, every week or two, you hear these rumors a deal is just around the corner. Russia is trying to act as a spoiler in that effort, so that may not happen. If it did, uh, it might bring uh, perhaps. 800,000 barrels to up to a million barrels a day onto the market by year end. That's what people anticipate. Iran also has some uh, so-called floating storage. They've been storing their oil on tankers and uh, barges and so on, waiting for sanctions to be lifted. That's helpful, but it certainly wouldn't replace four and a half million barrels a day from Russia if that, that were to be the full reduction in Russian exports. Venezuela is not really that much. It may be as much as 500,000 barrels a day if that deal is done. Here, again, American oilmen were deeply uh, offended and insulted that the administration would go and negotiate with a tin pot dictator, to quote one of them, in a country that America has held as a, a problem, rather than negotiate with them as American oilmen in the shale patch. They still feel quite snubbed by the, the very green administration, in their view, that pushes climate rather than actually encouraging the growth of U.S. shale, which is a vast and relatively inexpensive resource. So that's the mood of the American shale patch. Well, when I was last hanging out with the shale barons in the Permian Basin, it was all drill, baby, drill. And now I guess things have changed and it, it's uh, for a while it's been more like keep it in the ground. We heard Dr. Birrell at the IEA say he's expecting a million barrel a day increase from American shale. Is that feasible? So actually, Henry, the um, shale patch is on the rebound um, after demand booming in 2021. Fossil fuel consumption went through the roof as uh, parts of the world recovered from COVID. And so the industry is actually already expected to increase its output by a million barrels a day or so. But that's baked in. You know, that doesn't help with the Russian problem, right? That's the baseline at which the crisis happened. And now uh, the idea that they could produce another million barrel per day of output on top of what was already anticipated is what's really in, in question. Again, even then, that million wouldn't be nearly enough to fulfill the Russian shortfall, but it would help. People are skeptical. Uh, there are a lot of challenges in the way. In fact, I talked with Scott Sheffield of Pioneer, who's a real veteran, and someone you know as well, Henry. Uh, this isn't his first rodeo, and I was struck by just how gloomy he was. No, I've been VJ through uh, six oil and gas downturns and upturns. Uh, this is probably the worst one I've seen um, over the last uh, several years. I get asked about demand destruction, and I have to go back to 1980 and 81, when the price of oil went from 15 to $45, $50. And we had significant demand destruction. So we had a 300% increase in all prices at that point in time, and it lasted for several years. The question is, how long can we live with high oil prices in the world? 
the big unknown, I guess, is how big the shortfall is going to be and how long it will last. How much can American shale scale up and, and how quickly do you think? You know, I put this question to, to Vicky Holub, the CEO of Occidental Petroleum. That's Vicky Holub, who a couple of years ago, I made my person of the year in a Money Talks quiz. So I'm glad you've spoken to her, BJ. Yes, no, she's could be person <laughs> of the year again this year, for all we know, depending on how events turn out. But at the moment, she's quite concerned that uh, perhaps people are looking to shale as a quick fix when the industry isn't in a position to deliver on that. Before the crisis in Ukraine, there was already a shortage of supply. But now this is, the situation is that if we were to lose 4 million barrels of uh, the Russian exports, uh, that's a crisis that we can't mitigate. That's a situation where our industry today cannot replace those barrels anytime in the near term. And that's because basically the supply chain that is normally there for us to be able to increase production is no longer there. For example, tubulars that we need to case our wells with and to put in the wells to produce the hydrocarbons through, tubulars are not readily available. Now, these are steel tube products. Steel tubulars. Uh, trucks are in short supply right now. The drivers to drive those trucks, if we had them, were, are not available either. Uh, frac sand is in uh, short supply. And the same, some of the same supply chain challenges exist internationally as well. Now, is, aren't these all problems that money can solve? I mean, if oil jumps double, basically, in the last few months, if it goes to 150 and stays there for some period of time, wouldn't that, in effect, pay for, uh, if you double or triple the cost of talent, you'll, people will turn up to work, won't they? Uh, or are there some problems that can't be solved in the short term by additional money? Here's the problem. We have never in our industry faced a situation where the entire world was seeing supply chain um, shortages in all segments, all industries. In the past, there was an opportunity that we could take materials from other industries and convert them, like steel that was being used to supply you know, uh, building construction. But we can't do that now because every industry is facing supply chain challenges. Every industry is facing a shortage of people. So the, the problem is unlike anything we've ever seen. What is realistic? We have heard calls for American shale producers, particularly to increase output. According to official estimates, already the industry is on track to, to produce maybe 750,000 or a million barrels more than last year. Is that what you were thinking about, or what's your estimate? Uh, my estimate's lower than that. My estimate is probably in the 500,000 to 600,000 range more than last year. If the call came out that because of this global crisis, uh, this so-called so short cycle response that Shell represents, mm -hmm. you should uh, please produce more in the national mm -hmm. interest or the mm -hmm. global interest. Could you do it? I think it would take us three to four months to actually put the plans in place and start to be able to get the uh, the supply chain system worked a little bit better than it is today. To first new oil. To No, to, to start activity. Mm. And from the start of activity, then you're looking at another four to six months before you're getting first oil. So we're looking at, we're, we're 10 to 12 months out from being able to significantly increase over what we already had planned to do. To get an extra million barrels a day, if you were given the blessing of the U.S. government and love and affection and regulatory permissions, you couldn't get a million barrels a day extra quicker than a year. Is that right? Well, we would love to help have all that. <laughs> it would be very difficult to still to do that in less than 10 to 12 months. 
you know, we used to think that one of the incredible things about shale was the speed with which they could drill wells and get oil out of the ground. Um, it's quite intriguing how this is, has changed over the course of just a few years. And I guess there's, a, there's another issue, right, Vijay, which is that the shale companies uh, like Occidental and others have to answer to their shareholders. I, I had this conversation with Scott Sheffield last year. He talked to me about a new investor contract. Essentially, they were going to stop blowing everything on new oil wells and start pouring dividends into their shareholders' pockets instead. So what does all this do for that? Uh, you're absolutely right. The investor contract uh, is that nowadays for a number of companies in the shale patch, even written in, in writing uh, into executive compensation for CEOs and senior members. And that's because investors lost so much money. By one estimate, some $300 billion was destroyed in value over the shale boom, a decade of the shale boom and bust. And so uh, the, the leading companies now have uh, extreme rectitude about new expansions or chasing a high price because they're quite wary, uh, and their investors are, and they've made these promises to them that they will return the cash. Our industry has in the past, uh, I hate to say, I hate to admit this, has not been the, the best at returning value to shareholders. Uh, I think if we can continue to show the investment community that we now have some discipline, if we can get the investor confidence back, I think the investment community would then support the growth of oil and gas here in the United States. And that's critically important because prices where they are today, it's going to be damaging over time to the economy of the world. Oil bosses, one after the other, said, aside from getting the Biden administration off our backs on things like tut-tutting environmental regulations and so on, uh, the most important thing is getting our investors on board if we're expected to produce more oil. They said they can do it if you give us enough time, but we have to get a new kind of contract from our investors. Number one, uh, we have to get shareholder approvals. We have a contract with our shareholders that we're dispersing 80% of our free cash flow back to our shareholders. But at 100 so a barrel, you have a lot more free cash we flow. We have more free cash flow. So they need to give some of that up to let us grow a little bit. That may happen as things get worse in Ukraine. Um, secondly, uh, we have the issues with logistics, supply chain. Because we've had three downturns. People have left West Texas. They don't want to come back. So the only thing that's going to bring them to come back is a, a need from the administration, a need from shareholders, a need from us to ask uh, to be able to grow, and significant price increases. And so inflation, if we do start growing again and we double the U.S. shale production, we're going to have to be able to live with very, very high inflation. We may get it anyway, but we're going to have to pay a lot more for wages. That's the big concern among shareholders, the feedback we're already getting. They're concerned. Uh, we don't know when to stop. If we start growing a million and a half barrels a day, um, how do you know when you're going to uh, add too much supply? And all of a sudden, we have another downturn like we've had over the last 10 years. So there's a wariness about increasing production over the course of the next year. I mean, is there anything that can tip the balance that can kind of persuade investors that it is worth ramping up production? So it'll depend uh, to an extent on what the Biden administration does. 
the reason is that uh, it's not that the uh, industry uh, wants or needs lots of subsidies, let's say, you know, wheelbarrows of cash sent from the federal government. Uh, I don't think that's what they're asking for, nor would it really produce more oil on the ground. And that's because, let's remember it, $150 a barrel or higher, uh, cash isn't the problem or availability of, of resources or profitability. Uh, Scott Sheffield told me he can make money at $30 a barrel today. And even if the cost of supply chain goes up, it would still only cost about $50 a barrel. So I asked what it is that he and his colleagues in industry need from the government to ramp up production. I think, first of all, a, a general statement that false energy security is important, along with climate change. Fossil fuels is needed long term. So with that message, a change in message, we need to come from the Biden administration, which is mostly climate change people. Uh, they wanted to, they started off wanting to ban federal leases, they started off wanting to um, ban fracking along a lot of the department officials. That's a totally different mindset coming in. And so we need a total change of attitude. That attitude will be reflected among the banks. Banks aren't lending small producers. We don't have an issue, but small producers can't raise any money. We need the whole mindset change. So that's what the Biden administration message has got to be about, that we need fossil fuels, energy security, along with climate change over the next several decades. The real problem is that his investors and others who are not his investors, the so-called ESG, environmentally minded investors, are shunning oil. There's been a disinvestment of fossil fuels in the last couple of years. And the industry wants the administration to say, we need you in the energy transition. And it's okay for investors to invest in these companies, really to persuade investors that this is an acceptable, socially and politically acceptable form of uh, investment for their resources. So this is fascinating, VJ. I mean, this is a big rearrangement of the industry's priorities almost over the course of a week. I mean, as you said at the beginning, uh, you came to uh, to Sarah Week expecting people to be talking about the energy transition. And now they're basically saying that as well as the energy transition, they need energy security and they need it now. So what does all that mean for tackling climate change? Does this mean that the transition is kind of on hold? So this this is really the horns of the dilemma. The industry has been very, very uh, unhappy with the way it's demonized in their view. They're vital to the global economy. Uh, you know, the world consumes 100 million barrels a day of oil. So they have a point on that. That's not going to reduce any time in the near future. And they have initiatives that they touted at this event on carbon capture and sequestration, hydrogen, lots of other sorts of technologies that uh, suggest that they're going to try to tackle the climate change problem with skills and resources and technology that's closer to the oil and gas base rather than just windmills and, and solar panels. And so they feel like their attempts are under, under, underappreciated. And so they welcome this shift in priority to security and reliability. An influential voice right at the nexus of these concerns is Bob Dudley, who's a former boss of BP heading the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. His group, which includes most of the world's big Western oil majors, has lots of ambitious targets and, in fact, just announced a, an important one. Uh, they are now vowing to get to effectively zero methane emissions, uh, methane being a very powerful greenhouse gas, from the production of oil and gas. He argues that this crisis underlines the need for an energy transition rather than undermining it. 
Well, I think that what we're going to see as a result of this spikes in prices is you can actually see, a, uh, some people are pessimistic about it, but I think you can see a, a more rapid transition now because the economics of high oil, there'll be the demand destruction. There'll be people looking to look at the economics of, uh, of solar and wind. I mean, you can't do those overnight either. And movements towards hydrogen. Uh, I think you could see that accelerating. So I'm, I'm not saying this is all going to change the direction. All the companies, all the companies of the oil and gas climate initiative, they're all shifting their portfolios and investments more. But they're not privately breaking open the champagne saying, no, we're relevant. We're back. Forget the climate crowd. Oil is back. We're re- your reliable old pals. I have never seen uh, a more pessimistic group about the state of the world right now uh, of the national oil companies and the international oil companies and even Saudi Aramco, the largest company in the world. They're all worried. What industries like these want, the very long-term industries, is stability and, and you know, <laughs> predictability. And this is not a comfortable environment for them. Yes, prices might be up. 2020, prices were vastly negative. A million people left the oil and gas industry in 2020. Now we're back up. It's not going to stay at these sorts of levels. But I also believe that what this time says to the world is there is a place and there is a need to invest in oil and gas while you invest in the new energy transitions for the transition. It's very hard and I have to say, I see politicians wanting to do this, is let's stop all oil and gas and do the new energies. The world can't deal with that. You need both, and you need to do a transition. And um, these higher oil prices, a transition could happen faster. Yeah, I mean, I guess the backdrop to this is that question that's run through the oil industry, oh, dating right back to the 1970s, which is when oil prices get incredibly high, then there is that demand destruction or that potential for demand destruction because people literally can't afford fossil fuels, so they look for alternative sources of energy. So ultimately, the high prices that fill their coffers can come back to bite them, right? Absolutely right, Henry. That, that is the, the demand destruction or, or dirty words around um, you know, the Hilton Hotel in downtown Houston, because that is uh, something both OPEC as well as the private sector companies are terrified about, that uh, people will simply not buy gasoline at the kind of prices we're going to see during America's driving season uh, in the volumes that they need. And they'll suddenly say, actually, there seem to be some really nice electric cars here. So uh, as you and the rest of the crowd in Houston prepared to pack up, fly or drive home, um, I'm assuming in your electric car, VJ. I'm going to bicycle back to New York, Henry. (laughs) So how do you read where this leaves the industry? Is this a a new lease of life or a sign of trouble to come? I I think that this has been a a shock to the system. And we're going to see uh, a short-term renewed lease on life in the sense that for the next couple of years, Consumers and governments who are uh, very green and climate oriented have been reminded that oil not only has the power to shock, which historians of of energy would have reminded them long ago, but in fact remains vital to the world economy uh, and will do for some years to come. But the industry, if it's wise, will take that lesson that this might be the, the last call at the pub and that they had better get their act together on the climate front or else they won't 
make it to the next crisis. Well, thank you, Vijay. That was absolutely fascinating. It's my pleasure, Henry. These are interesting times. And our thanks too go to Fatih Birol, Bob Dudley, Jose Fernandez, Vicky Holub, and Scott Sheffield. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us at podcasts at economist.com. The producer is Amiko Shortina Nolan, with additional production by Michael Haggerty and Tom Pooley. Nico Raufast is our sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.